In late 2017, it seemed that the problem had been contained. All non-essential staff had been pulled out of Cuba. The CIA station in Havana was indefinitely shut. The U.S. government had sent a harsh message to the Cubans, expelling several of their diplomats from the United States. Meanwhile, those Americans affected are getting treatment. But then, in a matter of months, fresh cables arrive in Washington, reporting eerily similar instances facing CIA officers and diplomats abroad. The Havana syndrome, it seemed, was no longer limited to Havana. This thing, whatever it is, is spreading. I'd have American friends of mine in New Hampshire, you know, say like, oh, Marty, you're in that Guangzhou place or something like that. How is it over there? Are there like donkey carts? I was like, you need to come over and see this. These are more developed cities than, you know, American cities from an engineering perspective and stuff to see how they pretty much built that new city of, of Guangzhou. I mean, it was super impressive. Mark Lenzi's been stationed in southern China for just over a year, working at the U.S. consulate in Guangzhou, a huge metropolis just north of Hong Kong. He's an engineer with diplomatic security. Their job is to safeguard diplomats and their communications in foreign countries. He's the guy making sure none of the diplomats' homes or offices are bugged and that their computers aren't hacked. Mark's enjoying his time. The only downside to living here is the air quality. You wouldn't believe the stuff that that sometimes the the uh, <laughs> tint of the smog would be like this weird green tint. But after a while, Mark starts to notice something else. It was November of 2017 when we noticed a distinct um, increase in headaches and also a corresponding decrease in our sleep. And also the kids' bloody noses, although it's not... But at first, Mark and his wife think that what their children are experiencing is a bad reaction to the city's smog. Smog. But as 2017 turned into 2018, my most distressing symptom for me that I couldn't ascribe to the smog was short-term memory loss. Then he starts hearing rumors at work. His co-workers are saying that one of their diplomats has just been medevaced out of the country. And it's around the same time that Mark notices that his next-door neighbor, who also worked at the consulate, is missing. I haven't seen her for a long time. From his perspective, she's gone without a trace. My leadership is acting really weird with me about things. But I'm starting to kind of connect the dots here, like, wait a second, what's going on here? I'm John Lee Anderson. And I'm Adam Entis. From Vice World News, this is Havana Syndrome. Episode 5, Anyone, Anywhere, at Any Time. By the end of 2017, if you were stationed at a U.S. embassy in any country other than Cuba, you may not have even realized that there was any reason for concern. But just a few months later, people started to get sick in China. 
I didn't know about Guangzhou until months later. I heard about it from congressional sources that were briefed on it. I started reaching out to the victims via a lawyer that represents many of them. Mark Lenzi was one of the first ones who responded to me, and he had a real story to tell. Mark found himself on the front lines of the first major outbreak of possible cases outside of Havana. It was not a situation he foresaw. Not at all, actually. Not, 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 or at least what the little information I heard about uh, Cuba or something like that. No way. It would not, especially in China. No, I mean, absolutely not. I've worked in more than 70 countries around the world with the State Department, you know, Afghanistan, I've been to Iraq, Chad, places like this, so really kind of some tough countries. I've been, um, let's say, pushed around before in, in, in my work. I've done some pushing back. That's kind of the nature of the work. Or you said you got pushed around. Can you talk about any of that? Uh, not in detail too much. What I do as a security engineering officer, it's not really a traditional kind of uh, diplomat job. We work a lot with uh, very, let's say, specialized equipment. I was always interested in kind of technology, you know, James Bond, you know, tools and stuff like this growing up. Mark grew up watching movies where secret agents went around zapping enemy spies with ray guns. This led to him studying engineering and then getting a job with the State Department. This was kind of a good way to combine the traveling and cutting-edge technological toys, let's say, that the U.S. government uses, so that's why I wanted to... Basically, Mark prevents outsiders from infiltrating embassies and consulates. So it might be setting up uh, alarm systems within, uh, let's say, U.S. Embassy The Hague, or it might be looking for foreign countries trying to commit technical espionage against U.S. Embassy The Hague. You ever find a bug? No, I'm not going to talk about that. Many of the victims that I've talked to over the years of reporting on this have been circumspect and reluctant to point fingers. I've often had to slowly draw them out, sometimes over years, before they would talk to me. But Mark was different. It starts in his home. His apartment is in Tower 7, a giant building in Guangzhou that houses a lot of consular staff. Mark and his wife start hearing these strange sounds. These sounds, again, were like nothing that we had ever heard before. Kind of like a, a ball bearing, bouncing on glass. Kind of this high-pitched sound. Of all the people we've talked to, Mark's description of the sound is by far the most specific. You had like that ball bearing in a six-foot diameter steel metal funnel. And, and it gets the sound that would make us that gets progressively faster down towards the bottom. It's Mark's wife who hears the sounds first. She's in bed one night when... My wife startled awake with the headache, hears that sound, and says, like, what the hell could be causing that? Well, maybe it's our neighbor upstairs. So she texts our neighbor. Like, are you dropping some weird, like, ball bearings, like, on the floor? I don't know how you're doing that sound, but, like... Mark's neighbor texts his wife back a little while later, and she's like, there's no one in that room above you. No one's been in that room for, you know, eight hours. After that, my neighbor kind of treated my wife like a little bit like, you're kind of hearing these strange sounds, texting me at 11 o'clock at night after your kid's in bed and you're in bed and about these strange sounds, like, what the hell? But then he notices other things. His kids start waking up every morning with bloody noses. 
Remember that Tony, the first CIA officer to report getting Havana Syndrome in Cuba, told us that he had a bloody nose so intense that it soaked through his pillow. Mark and his wife keep getting awful headaches. They start popping aspirin like they were Tic Tacs. We were definitely taking a lot more aspirin. In fact, she bought a, like a huge jar, if you know, 500 tablets of aspirin. And I split that because I was taking it at work. I was taking it at home and stuff like that. And so now Mark's coming in late to work, calling in sick. His job performance starts to suffer. An important part of the job is memorizing security codes to let him or his bosses into restricted areas throughout the consulate, like entire floors of the building that are off limits. And Mark usually has dozens of these memorized. But now, when he tries to get into these restricted areas and has to type the right code into the keypad, his mind goes blank. I thought that maybe I had like early onset of Alzheimer's. That's kind of what I was Because he's forgetting even simpler things. One day, when he's installing cable with another technician, he tries to ask for a tool that he's used for years, but suddenly he can't remember the name. And the word I was looking for was water pump liars. It was like one of these awkward moments, and he's like, you okay, man? But he bailed me out, luckily, and he said, oh, well, you're over 40 now. I guess, yeah, 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 welcome to the club, man. It's in the middle of Mark experiencing all of these strange symptoms that he hears that his neighbor, who also works at the consulate, is gone. Then he finds out that she was actually medevaced for a serious medical emergency. Mark and his neighbor weren't close, but he feels that he must talk to her. Maybe she can help him make sense of what he's going through. After some back and forth, he gets her on the phone. At the time, she's actually at the University of Pennsylvania with some of the victims from Cuba. She said, why are you calling me? And I said, well, I wanted to let you know that my wife and I are, uh, over the last couple months... He tells her about their symptoms. She's like, okay, that's it. I'm going to stop you right there. Those same symptoms that you just described to me, that's exactly what I had. That's why. When Mark tells her that he and his family are still living in their apartment, she kind of freaks out. She goes, Mark, you need to get them out right now. I'm surprised you're even still in that apartment. I said, well, they're not telling us anything. And then she says to him, do you know why I'm back here? And I was like, no, they're not telling us. He's like, I'm back here as diagnosed with brain injury, the same thing that was going on in Cuba. While all of this is happening to Mark in China, the U.S. government is still struggling to figure out what's going on. The FBI's Behavioral Analysis Unit had started to examine the Havana cases. I got a tip that this FBI unit was working on it. Soon thereafter, I broke the news that they had come to the conclusion that this was psychogenic, meaning that the FBI unit believed that nothing real had happened to them. After my article came out, a number of people got in touch with me. Victims, State Department officials, the doctors at UPenn, they were all pissed. How could the FBI unit reach this conclusion without talking to any of the victims? Some of these people were so distraught that I was worried that they were potentially suicidal. Regardless of the FBI assessment, Havana syndrome just kept spreading. Around the same time that Mark first gets sick, a senior CIA officer comes down with the symptoms in Moscow. The events in Moscow and Guangzhou weren't made public right away. 
and my reporting leads me to think that those were the first incidents reported outside of Cuba. But of course, there could be others that we don't know about yet. A pattern was yet to be detected, and inside the government, the new cases weren't really getting much attention. There was a lot of confusion about what Havana syndrome even was, or if it was even real. It looked like maybe this would never get solved. It was going to be Bigfoot, UFOs, the Havana syndrome. It wasn't a priority. But there were a few people in government, many of whom were cold warriors, who were dying to get to the bottom of it and were frustrated that nobody could give them any answers. And do you guys need anything, cords, blah, blah, blah? No, I just think the only thing that we're going to ask everyone in the room to do is to, like, to probably turn off their cell phones. <laughs> if that's not going to happen? <laughs> no, it will. It will. Okay. Um, I believe that the Ambassadors is on silent. It depends on the ring, though. Is it a cool ring? <laughs> no, it is not a cool ring. I, I can guarantee you that. Ambassador Hi. John Lee Anderson. Hi, how are, how are you? you? Nice to meet you. Uh, they just want you to say your name and, you know, I was National Security Advisor, something like that. Uh, I'm John Bolton. I was a National Security Advisor during the Trump administration. The best time of your life? <laughs> <laughs> Except when he was wishing me dead from COVID-19. <laughs> Bolton was President Trump's third National Security Advisor in just over a year. But he's served in every Republican presidential administration going back to Reagan. Is John Bolton the most dangerous man in the world? He's got leaders around the globe terrified he could trigger a full-scale battle. He was the ambassador to the UN under George W. Bush. He has a reputation of a bit of a bomb thrower. An institution he didn't particularly believe in. I started in April of uh, 2018, and just uh, a few weeks, I think, before that, there had been reports of similar attacks in China. In his second year in office, Trump chooses Bolton to be his national security advisor. Soon thereafter, he's briefed on the latest developments in the Havana Syndrome mystery. Bolton forms a strong opinion about the situation pretty quickly. It Certainly from all outward appearances, it was an attack on American personnel, first in Cuba, then in China. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we can't tolerate that. But He starts poking around, asks his staff to start pulling together any inside information. But to his surprise, there isn't much. In terms of your sense of the prioritization given to this by the intelligence community, um, what was your sense of, of the way they viewed this? I didn't sense uh, that they thought it was much of a priority. I, I, he starts pushing for more to be done. You can't say to Gina Haspel, the CIA director, I need you to, like, double the resources on this. Well, you, you, you can say a lot of things. Whether the bureaucracy responds is a different story. I don't command anybody outside the relatively small NSC staff. Bolton starts raising his concerns at meetings he's having with other principals in government. And what Bolton learns is that even though the FBI, the CIA, and the State Department are all investigating Havana Syndrome, no one is making much progress, which is understandably pretty frustrating for him and his top advisor at the National Security Council. So just basically uh, say your name and then... Uh, okay. I'm Charles Kupperman. I was a Deputy National Security Advisor from January 2019 until the end of September of 2019. Kupperman and Bolton go way back. They're both Cold Warriors, anti-communist types. Since the beginning of his political career in the late 1970s, Kupperman has been focused on national security, particularly the threat posed by Russia. And so when he comes back to the White House in 2018 to join the Trump administration, his focus is on ensuring that we are better equipped militarily than our adversaries. 
There was a, a great deal of interest on the part of Ambassador Bolton that we need to stay ahead of the technology curve and the threat curve in technology. So we put together a team that would look far out as to what other technologies might we pay attention to that create threats against the United States and our allies. One of the first tasks his team takes on is trying to figure out what's causing Havana syndrome. With limited information, they use a process of elimination to rule out potential causes. They land on a theory that Havana syndrome is caused by a weapon. As for what kind of weapon, they think it's one that uses pulsed microwave radiation. And he came up with a very interesting set of conclusions. Primarily a pulse microwave device could cause the kind of damage that uh, individuals were experiencing. We'll get deeper into how this kind of weapon, if it exists, might work in a later episode. But for now, all you need to know is that it's a weapon that supposedly uses microwave energy, similar to how your home microwave works. But the thing is, this kind of weapon is more theory than reality. Pulsed microwave weapons have never been used on a battlefield that we know of. Still, when Kupperman hears his team's theory, he has an immediate emotional reaction. Angry. Angry. Absolute anger. You know, if we're going to negotiate with our adversaries and they're not going to follow even the most basic international norms, we need to change our lenses and look at these countries as enemies, not as competitors. The enemies are enemies, and there is no difference between what's being done in a state of war and attacking American citizens. Kupperman concludes that the U.S. is under siege by a foreign adversary, and something needs to be done about it. They're mortified to this day that that I sent this email, not because everything in it was 100% true and factual. Uh, It's because the the, uh, U.S. diplomat is using terms like lied to and cover up. That's after the break. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. 
In early 2018, Mark Lenzi is still experiencing all these intense symptoms in Guangzhou. When I evacuated us from that apartment, the headaches get a little bit better for my wife and I. So after he finds out that his neighbor is getting treatment back in the States at the University of Pennsylvania, he's upset. His bosses know that he's also been sick and that his family has been sick. So what do they know that he doesn't know? Do they know what's put his family at risk? And if so, why haven't they done anything for them? Why haven't they moved him out of Tower 7? He's worried that the longer they stay, the worse they'll get. He starts asking more questions, but gets no clear answers. One day, he corners one of his bosses at the consulate. I said, what the hell? That, that's my neighbor's apartment. Don't you care about that? She was medevac back because of a brain injury. And you weren't going to tell me that? He's like, I didn't know that you were neighbors, and I don't care. Mark's a bit of a hothead, and his anger is a potential problem for his bosses. He's a volcano that's about to erupt. But Mark feels like he's being gaslit and that he needs to do something before any more of his colleagues get hurt. So on May 27, 2018, he writes a really lengthy email. It's two Guangzhou Americans, which is about 180, at the time, 185 yeah. Americans. And I cc'd Terry Branstadt, the ambassador in Beijing. Friends, colleagues, many of you know me from organizing football games with the Marines or dissing Cornell during Thursday street hockey, but most... He describes what his family has been going through. I would also encourage children who have, who have had to play, who have had play dates with Elise and Tommy, those are my kids, at our apartment to get evaluated as well. Sorry, when I talk about my kids, that's... Uh, <clears throat> He doesn't just warn his colleagues about their health. He takes things a step further. Over the past two months, you have been poorly served by leadership at U.S. Consulate Guangzhou, Embassy Beijing, and from state leadership in Washington. An attempted cover-up has taken place. This is a stunning accusation for an active diplomat in country to accuse State Department leadership of a cover-up. And so publicly accusing the American government of a cover-up, which it denied. We asked the State Department about Mark's story. They told us that due to privacy concerns and for security reasons, they do not discuss specific individuals or events. Ultimately, my reporting suggests that over a dozen U.S. officials and their family members were medically evacuated from China including Mark Lenzi and his family. I've spoken to a number of them, and for the most part, they're pissed, because even though they were eventually evacuated, they feel like they should have been told sooner that they were in danger if the State Department knew people were getting sick. Some of these diplomats, like Mark, even believe that consulate officials in Guangzhou intentionally lied to them and tried to cover up how much danger they were in. I have my own assessment, which is that the State Department was trying to keep things hush-hush in Guangzhou because they didn't know what to make of the China cases. And they were trying to buy themselves some time to figure out what to do. They didn't want to be pressured into a confrontation with China without hard information. The trade relationship with China is critical, and the diplomatic mission there is one of our most important in the world. They couldn't just use the same playbook they followed in Cuba. They would be playing with fire, I can understand why Mark sent the email, because he was genuinely concerned for his and his family's safety. 
and about the safety of his colleagues. But I can also understand why American officials were unhappy with him, because the last thing they wanted was a panic and press attention, which is what they got. Well, it was frustrating, obviously, but uh, this is not a question of believing in the deep state. Uh, I'm not saying that at all. John Bolton doesn't see what happened in China as a cover-up. My conclusion uh, toward the end of my tenure at the NSC was that basically the docs in the CIA and the State Department just didn't believe what the people were telling them. And if you just think there's nothing there there, then that explains why a bureaucracy doesn't move. This was a situation where they said, we don't know. So you can pound on somebody as much as you want. And if they keep saying, we don't know, you can't say that they're lying. They, they may actually not know. Regardless of not knowing what it is, Bolton comes up with his own theories of who might be behind Havana syndrome. Initially, before the China cases emerged, I remember us having a conversation in which uh, you thought China could be the culprit here. Why did you think that? And why did you have a revision in your personal assessment that more likely it's the Russians? My first feeling was that it was the Russians because the first incident had taken place in Cuba. And I didn't think it was the Cubans. I thought, uh, thought it was the Russians. When the second we heard was in China, I thought, well, maybe that's the Russians playing around there too. In, in a way, maybe a false flag operation to get us to suspect the Chinese. Bolton isn't alone in his thinking. Because of the historically close ties between the Cubans and Russians, many assumed that the thawing of relations between the U.S. and Cuba was bound to ruffle feathers. Remember, Russia and Cuba remain close. And with President Putin's increasingly hostile relationship with the West ramping up, I'd been hearing from sources that Putin had been making deliberate overtures to keep the Cubans closer and to expand his spying capabilities on the island. There's another very big piece of circumstantial evidence here. For decades, the Russian state and the USSR before it experimented with microwave technology, the kind of tech that Bolton's theme thought was perhaps behind Havana Syndrome. We'll go deeper into this in our next episode. So there was this belief that Russia was behind this, in which case the false flag operation makes sense, attacking people in China to make it look like the Chinese were involved. This is exactly the kind of thing the Russian government has done for years. They try and confuse and distract. And this is where you might assume that Bolton, as national security advisor, goes to his boss, the president, and says something like, we're under attack, we need to do something. But that wasn't the case. Because we thought the most likely culprit was the Russians, there wasn't really any point in talking to Trump about it because it would have meant explaining that almost certainly, with at least the tacit approval of Vladimir Putin, the Russians were attacking Americans. At this point, Trump has been vocal in denying reports that Russia had interfered on his behalf in the 2016 election. So anything involving Putin or Russia is already super sensitive. And Trump is also very suspicious of the CIA and dismissive of any of their findings. One thing that I concluded fairly early was there were only so many things you could put on his radar screen at any one time. Because the Trump administration was so chaotic, maybe we've grown accustomed to stories like this. Still, it's shocking to me that a sitting national security advisor wouldn't tell his boss, the president, about his suspicions that Russia was attacking U.S. citizens.
This is an NBC News special report. Well, there were cheers uh, outside Buckingham Palace here as uh, Marine One elegantly swooped down behind Buckingham Palace there. An entourage of the royal family who will meet the presidents. This is a... At the end of John Bolton's first year serving in the Trump administration, Havana syndrome seemed to mostly affect diplomats and spies who were abroad, in places with governments hostile to the United States, like Cuba, Russia, and China. Bolton and Kupperman themselves didn't know any of the victims personally. But that was about to change. In London, the president landed in the UK a few hours ago. He will be received this morning by Queen Elizabeth. All the pomp and ceremony... In June of 2019, Bolton and his team were in London for a state visit, staying at the same ritzy hotel as almost everyone else from the White House delegation. And over the course of a couple days, two of Bolton's own staff members reported incidents that sounded eerily familiar. What was your reaction when you heard that these two people were affected like this? Given the location, I took it to mean that somebody had targeted the hotel, knowing that that's where pretty much everybody on the U.S. delegation was staying. I guess what I thought was they're after White House personnel. I've been told not just by Bolton, but by other officials in the U.S. government, that this was a pivotal moment. It was a wake-up call at the White House. It suggested that anyone could be targeted anywhere in the world. And so, of course, we wanted to visit the scene of the crime. What's that sound, Adam? You know, yeah, I think you should ask John Lee. I'm not actually sure what I'm listening to. <laughs> John Lee, what's that sound? Well, we're walking along the side of Buckingham Palace, and it's the changing of the guards. I think you know by now that if there's one thing you can count on John Lee for, it's some scenic description. You can see them out there in their bare hats and their serried ranks. Look at, they're wearing oh, yeah. their, the great, great coats for winter. They're gray. Towards the end of 2021, our team went to London. We are visiting the site where uh, in uh, June 2019, uh, two uh, NSC staff members uh, said they were in the hotel room uh, when, they were, when they felt tremendous pressure uh, in their heads and heard a strange sound in their ears and believed that they were under attack. As journalists, there's just no substitute for actually going somewhere and seeing with your own eyes where an event has happened. And we were sure our keen investigative instincts wouldn't fail us. With two world-class reporters on the case, nothing was going to sidetrack us. Hey, 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 hold on. Do you, uh, do you guys know where you're going? Uh, I thought we were following uh, John Lee. Well, if you want to use your GPS, this is telling me we're supposed to go around that circle. Hmm. Don't know. Okay. Um, is it? So I'm turned around. Yeah. You're on this side of Buckingham Palace. And the best way is just to go across and go through the park. Okay. okay. Cut across. Thank you very much. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, we can get across if we hurry. Another American told us what to do. That's funny. <laughs> I just have to say here that John Lee actually lives in England. But anyway, now nothing is going to sidetrack us. I think the thing to keep in mind about London, London is also a part of the five eyes. So it's one of the countries, one of the five countries 
that includes the United States, uh, the UK, Australia, New Zealand, you know, Canada, that the U.S. shares all of its most sensitive intelligence with. This is uh, something that came out of World War II. As we walked toward the hotel where Bolton and the rest of the White House team were staying, we started thinking about how much of a game-changer it was for people to get sick here. Yeah, because the U.K. is the closest of allies to the United States. Still, though, I wasn't entirely shocked when I heard that Havana Syndrome struck London. Explosions at three separate subway stations tore through trains and ripped apart a double-decker bus like it was a tin can. There have been plenty of terrorist attacks in the UK over the past few decades. Alexander Litvinenko's death from acute radiation sickness was slow and agonizing. As he lay on his deathbed, he told them he'd been targeted by the Russian Secret Service. Hold on, so this is, this is it? This is the hotel? Yeah, this is the Park Lane Intercontinental. The last time I was here, I came for tea with General Pinochet in 1998, just before he was arrested. Pinochet, as in the dictator who ruled Chile for almost two decades. This is where he stayed. Oh boy. Yeah. Every year he would come to London. He was a friend of then former Prime Minister Maggie Thatcher. You know, this is the very heart of elite London. Why do, say, foreign, high-level foreign delegations stay in this area? Because, I mean, look around you. Yeah. We're very near Buckingham Palace. We're right across from Hyde Park. Every other car on the street is either bodyguards or chauffeured limos. You know, it's safe London. Yeah. Are we going? Okay. Let's do it. Morning. Morning. Welcome. Thank you. Morning. Let me see what I have uh, ready for you if you need the check-in now, sir. Thank you. Both of the London victims felt the symptoms while they were in a hotel room. So we checked into a room in the hotel ourselves. It's about 15 by 18 feet. The room, frankly, wasn't much to look at. Yeah. And then there's a little hallway and a bathroom. It was a big uh, wooden, you know, rosewood-type bureau with a TV in it. And, but it's, yeah, it's, um, it's, a, it's a very overpriced London hotel room. It's not very impressive. But what happened here to John Bolton's aides marked another turning point. I know a lot of the details of what happened here. I spoke to the victims themselves and their superiors. But there are some facts I'm still missing. It's early on the morning of June 3rd, 2019. Bolton's aide wakes up early. And she wakes up early because her job is to prepare the paperwork for John Bolton to start his day. And after she finishes, she goes to the breakfast room in the lobby. It's around 9 o'clock in the morning. She comes back up to her room, which overlooks the park. The blinds are open. And she sits down and she's, you know, checking her emails and, you know, uh, on her phone and on her laptop. And that's when she feels a burst of pressure in her head and ringing in her ears. And she has no idea what's happening. She freaks out and she rushes out the door of her room into the hallway. And suddenly, the pressure stops. She's fine. Then later, during the same trip, the second incident, she's got a more junior colleague who does the same job. They are planning on going to dinner together. And so the more senior staffer invites the more junior staffer to come to her room. 
And so they're in the room, by the couches again, the blinds are open, and they both feel the pressure and the pain. And one of them says, do you feel that? The other one says, yes, I do. That discomfort just kept on growing and growing. And they both, again, rush out of the room. Immediately, the sensations stop. This is the first time where you had two people experiencing the same thing at the same time and actually discussing it real time, which made this particular episode especially credible in my mind. Yeah, so the room that I was describing is uh, directly above us. We head downstairs to the hotel's bar. The victims were in a room directly above us. And when you look out the window, there's, you know, there's enough space only that, as far as I can tell, for two vehicles. And there are two vans that are parked in the spots. Nondescript. One is a utility van. The other has no markings on it whatsoever. It could be anything. We don't know. Yeah. And, um, but they wouldn't be there without the hotel's say-so or okay. It's just hard to see, you know, where anybody would have line of sight to the rooms above us. Yeah. It, it, it just... Is, is hard to see. I think we need to go outside. Yeah, let's, let's go outside and yeah. see. And see, see if that. we look up. The war memorial over there. And there's a couple of statues. Oh, sorry. All right. All right. Well, you know, I take back what I said. Look. Adam pointed up to some windows on the second floor of the hotel. We're standing outside the hotel, uh, directly in front of where... The room was, which is above the bar area that we just were in, and the restaurant. The rooms we're talking about are, are the row that she's in is this row. Yeah. And the way it's situated is they're built out. Every other room sticks out. From where we are, you can see the back of the chairs in the room. And so, so frankly, I, I didn't realize how visible and it would be but so, I mean, if you were if you were sitting on one of those chairs you're yeah, you're clear line, of sight. clear line of sight from from the sidewalk out front and if and somebody were actually in the room standing or sitting you'd be able to you'd see their head you know their head and shoulder easily you're very exposed you are exposed actually much more exposed than i realized just below those exposed windows is a very short street and on that street are two public parking spaces, which is super rare. There are almost no parking spaces in this entire neighborhood. Which is all to say, if you had a big experimental weapon that needed to be moved in a large vehicle to keep it hidden, these two parking spots are perhaps the only ones in the neighborhood where you could park. On that day that we stood in front of the hotel, a big white van was parked in one of those spaces, and it had a perfect view of the room in which Bolton's aides had sat. You could sit here in a van and do whatever you were going to do to zap somebody up front. Our colleagues came back from the trip and, you know, came in and said something very strange happened while we were in London and we don't understand it. Charlie Kupperman, former Deputy National Security Advisor. When you hear that two people on your team undergo this, have this experience, does it feel like the team, the White House itself, is the target. Yes, it does. 
It does feel like the White House is a target because the National Security Council is a key component in the White House. They're basically sending us a message that we can reach out and touch you anytime, any place we want to. After the events in London, Havana syndrome seems to keep spreading. U.S. officials report incidents in Colombia, Kyrgyzstan, Germany, India. Sometimes people get sick in their apartments, sometimes in their cars, sometimes walking down the street. To paraphrase Charlie Kupperman, it seems like Havana syndrome can touch anyone, anywhere, at any time. Which begs the question, if Kupperman is right and there's a weapon making people ill, what kind of weapon would that be? That's on the next episode of Havana Syndrome. Havana Syndrome is hosted and reported by Adam Entus and me, John Lee Anderson. It's produced and reported by Julian Nutter, Jesse Alejandro Cottrell, and Ramon Campos Iriarte, and edited and executive produced by Annie Aviles and Kate Osborne, with original composition and sound design by Steve Bone. <laughs>